0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Jean. On today's podcast, we have a special guest to discuss the feats of the Wright Brothers and the invention of the airplane. As always with us is our resident U.S. history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. Today, we are joined by a representative from the Wright Brothers National Museum in Dayton, Ohio. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and what you do at the museum?
1: Yes, my name is Alex Heckman. I'm the Vice President of Museum Operations for an organization called Dayton History. Among the assets that we manage is Carillon Historical Park, a 65-acre open-air museum, which is home to the Wright Brothers National Museum.
0: Now, one of the things that really pushed me to do an episode on this topic was the fascination that people have with flying. I think that if you asked most people what superpower they would want to have, they would choose the ability to fly. The fascination that people have with flying or trying to build flying machines, it goes back centuries. Aside from Wilbur and Orville Wright, who we're going to talk about during the podcast, are there any other aviation pioneers that you think people should know about?
1: Yes. So... The Wright brothers were working in the context of a number of other people working on this problem. Um, And specifically I would suggest that there is an engineer um, who lived in Chicago named Octave Chanute who did quite a bit of research on the problem of uh, human flight and compiled a lot of information. He was certainly a sounding board for the Wright brothers also, um, the German glider pilot Otto Lilienthal um, was a major inspiration for the Wright brothers and for others. Uh, interestingly enough, it was his, it was his death uh, in a gliding accident that uh, prompted Wilbur Wright to say that his own active interest in aeronautical problems could be traced to the death of uh, Otto Lilienthal. And that might seem odd when you first hear that to think, well, why would someone dying to pursue something be an inspiration? I think for Wilbur Wright, he felt as though Lilienthal was on to something and was really, uh, really was starting to unlock this, this puzzle a little bit. So those were certainly two inspirations, two important people I would suggest that that uh, your listeners would want to know about. Um, and then the Wright brothers also had competition in those early years. Uh, there was a. Uh, Motorcycle builder and motorcycle racer named Glenn Curtis, who is considered the father of naval aviation, or the US Navy would look to him as being kind of the the father of naval aviation. Um, And so he was certainly another important early figure.
0: Could you discuss the early lives of Wilbur and Orville Wright?
1: Absolutely. Wilbur and Orville Wright, even though everyone learns in school about them as almost a corporate entity, almost as though they were the same person. Wilbur and Orville were two very distinct individuals living in a larger family. So it may surprise people to learn that in fact, there were two older brothers, Ruchlin and Lauren Wright, and there was a younger sister uh, named Catherine Wright. In their formative years growing up, Wilbur was much closer to his two older brothers than he was with Orville. And Orville and Catherine Wright ran around in the same circles, had the same group of friends, And particularly for people who have siblings, if you think about a four-year age gap, that may not matter when someone's 30 and the other sibling is 34, but it does seem to matter a lot when one sibling is 15 years old and the other one's 11 years old. They're in two different points in their development and two different points in life. And so one way to demonstrate this is that while growing up, uh, Ruchlin, Lauren, and Wilbur Wright were three members of a club of 10 Dayton boys. It was one of these uh, social clubs that was formed with some of their neighbors and friends in West Dayton. And Wilbur, Ruchelin, and Lauren, and these seven other men were all part of this social group. Orville was not part of that group. And you know, again, had a separate set of friends, separate set of, of uh, people that he uh, ran around with. And so I think that's one important part to talk about in terms of their formative years. The other really important piece is that they were both raised in a household in which their father was an elected bishop in the Church of the United Brethren in Christ. So on the one hand, he was someone who had very strong opinions about how his children should be raised. He, uh, you know, like many Christian people at the time, felt that you should not drink alcohol, you shouldn't smoke or use any tobacco products, you shouldn't gamble, play cards or games of chance anything along that line, everything was very clear to him in terms of black and white, You know, not really a lot of shades of gray in his opinion on, on life and how to, how to approach life. But at the same time, he was very forward thinking um, about a lot of other topics. And he would have books in his library in which he would suggest to his kids to pull books out of his library about written by famous atheists he would have books on evolution, um, all manner of different topics, because he very much felt that people should uh, kind of learn and explore their world. So even when his children were being punished, Bishop Wright would basically kind of put them in this small little room under the steps that was filled with books. So you know, he kind of just instead of just putting them in the corner or putting them like, well, today we might think about putting someone in a timeout chair, he would. He would kind of put them in this timeout little room filled with books. So they could kind of foster their creativity or their, their imagination a little bit in that regard.
0: I like that. Forget about just sitting and doing nothing when you're punished, you know, pick up a book to read, learn something interesting or useful. The brothers are from Dayton, Ohio, which is where your museum is located, but they don't fly their airplane there instead They choose Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Now, if anyone has seen a North Carolina license plate, they are boasting first in flight. Now, I read and I'm hoping that you can prove or disprove this, that they chose Kitty Hawk after researching weather patterns around the United States with the U.S. Weather Bureau. And they chose Kitty Hawk by the beach because of the wind. Is that true?
1: Yes, that is a big part of the answer. So we like to say that it took both states in in the sense of, you know, leading to successful powered, you know, uh, flight. But you're correct. When in particular, Wilbur Wright was really bitten by the flight bug early on, and he is the one that writes to the U.S. Weather Bureau. Now, the Weather Bureau provides a list to him of cities and areas of the United States with strong, consistent wind because Wilbur was looking for a place to do his glider experiments. I will say that there were places on the list that ranked higher than the uh, Outer Banks of North Carolina. But this gets to the second reason that the Wright Brothers selected that location, which was the uh, privacy that it afforded. You have to remember that they were living in a day and age of uh, yellow journalism, where you know the more sensational the news story, the better. So you can only imagine, it wouldn't take very creative writing for someone to to write up an article about these two crazy bicycle builders from Dayton, Ohio, who think they're going to fly through the air like birds, you know, and so I think they were keenly aware of the need to have some privacy. The um, beaches also provided soft sand for landing, and what I think is important also to remember is that they didn't just go down there to test their airplane when that famous photograph is taken December 17th, 1903. In fact, the Wright brothers were down there um a very methodical way they they travel hundreds of miles away down to north carolina in 1900 again in 1901 1902 and 1903 each of those years pursuing this question of flight building gliders and bigger and better gliders up to the point that they were able to build a powered airplane with an engine and propellers and and the rest of it so um we do have a lot of fun rivalry over the years with, you know, Dayton and North Carolina, uh, in terms of claiming the Wright brothers, um, in 2003, during the centennial of, uh, of the first powered airplane flight, Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, he quipped that, um, you know, North Carolina provided the wind and Ohio provided the intellect. Mm. <laughs> and he, he was saying that as a proud Ohioan himself, but, uh, <laughs> But I think that gives you a little bit of an idea of of the overall story. It it was the wind, but it was also the soft sands and it was the privacy. And I will also add maybe one other little caveat is that Wilbur wrote to the the folks at the uh, Kill Devil Hills Life Saving Station down there near Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. And he got a very warm letter in response um, and ended up having a really great rapport with the people that were living down there. And so um it's all that's all part of the story you could say
0: now i just want to go back to something you mentioned that he had to write to the us weather bureau i think today especially people take for granted just how much information we have at our fingertips you can go to a search engine you can type in a couple of keywords and within seconds you have a wealth of information you mentioned Otto Lilienthal and how his death is what motivated the Wright brothers to get information about aviation and to build that flying machine. In order to get that information, he had to write another letter, this time to the Smithsonian Institute.
1: You're correct. That, that's correct. So today, at both the Library of Congress and at Wright State University here in Dayton, Ohio. There is an amazing treasure trove of letters and correspondence that exists because you're absolutely correct. The way that we consume information in the 21st century is dramatically different than the Wright brothers and what they knew while they were growing up and what they knew as young men and as they, what they knew as they were pursuing this uh, problem of practical flight. Give you one really ex- ex- excellent example of this. The, the first time that Wilbur and Orville Wright go into business together, and the first time we really think of Wilbur and Orville as, a, as an entity, is not to build bicycles or airplanes, but in fact, their very first career was printing and publishing, which they found, eventually found to be a lot of work for very little profit. But one of the things that they did was to produce a weekly newspaper for their neighbors and the businesses in their neighborhood of West Dayton. Here in Ohio, uh, in, in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Well, on average, they would put one newspaper out per week, and that was for two big reasons. One is that in this day and age, they were setting, hand setting the type. So every letter of every word of every sentence, they're pulling out of the type drawer and and setting the type by hand. But the other big reason was that most of the news was coming over the telegraph service, over the telegraph line. So. Learning about Otto Lilienthal occurred because Orville Wright, the younger brother, the one with the mustache, he, he was suffering from uh, typhoid fever and at the time. And his uh, brother, Wilbur, was reading these news stories about the, uh, this German glider pilot, Otto Lilienthal, literally li- reading them over the wire service as part of his effort to find out what news stories he was going to add to his newspaper. So my point with that is that up until late in the 19th century, it was common for most cities of any size to basically have one newspaper per week on average being published. So what that tells you is that your news at best would probably be about one week old, one week out of date instead of these up to the minute breaking headlines that are pushed to our cell phones um, nowadays. So I think that's a really important piece. And there was actually a a different German, a German immigrant to America named um, Mergenthaler, Ottmar Mergenthaler, who invented the um, linotype machine that was first used at the New York uh, Tribune newspaper in 1886. And that machine revolutionized printing, and it made it possible to start having two newspapers a day instead of one newspaper per week. And it completely changed how news was being consumed in that in that time period.
0: Very interesting. You know, the Wright Brothers, when we first spoke on the phone, you know, I was amazed there, you know, what that first flyer was made out of. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how they made the flyer?
1: Absolutely. So the world's first successful airplane is made out of wood and wire and fabric. The wing surfaces are covered with a cotton muslin material that the Wright brothers literally sewed um, using their mother's Singer sewing machine. Um, Wilbur would actually operate the sewing machine and Orville would be squatting around all across the floor marking the sections to cut and the sections to sew. So from top to bottom, it was a handcrafted machine. Um, They they, they called it a machine of practical utility. And it was a machine that, you know, they literally designed every, every piece and part of it. They built every piece and part of it. And then they are the ones that climbed aboard and flew it. They did have help with one of their bicycle shop employees in actually building the um, engine. Uh, but again, this is a machine that they themselves designed, built, and flew. And the reason I point that out is that a lot of other early competitors to the Wright brothers would design something and have someone else build it. And then maybe have someone else altogether, you know, be enlisted to climb aboard the thing and actually attempt to fly it. Um, Most famously, Samuel Pierpoint Langley, who was the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, DC, he was one of the nation's top scientists. Well, he designs an aircraft that has people, he has people, you know, help him build it. And then he hires a poor soul named Charles Manley to climb aboard this grand aerodrome as it was launched off of a houseboat over the Potomac River and very, very rapidly fell into the, you know, into the uh, Potomac River. And uh, the second time that his experiment uh, took place and the second time that this, that this uh, attempted aircraft falls into the, into the river was just nine days before the Wright brothers successfully fly their airplane that they themselves built. Uh, so it really is a, a great story. You know, here you had one of the kind of the someone that was recognized as like one of the top scientists in the country. He had spent $70,000 of taxpayer money to build, uh, to attempt to build what Wilbur Norville Wright built for less than $1,000 of their own money. And, you know, and something that they themselves climbed aboard to fly, you know, not, not trying to part it out to someone else to, to, to fly.
0: It's amazing how the Wright brothers were able to figure out the physics of flight. How do we get it to get off the ground? How do we get it to stay in the air? How will we be able to steer it and get it to go where we want it to go? Why were the Wright brothers able to solve such a complex problem that had defied so many others who were, more trained or had a greater financial backing, like the person you discussed from the Smithsonian?
1: Yes, I think it's an excellent question. And I think the the particular aspect for the Wright brothers is that I, I would say three major elements when I considered this question. One is this kind of this broad idea of perseverance, that they continued to work at the problem and pursue the problem, even when it looked as though It was it was there was no hope it was going to fail. Uh, Coming back from their 1901 flying season on a train, Orville remembered Wilbur remarking that not within a thousand years would man ever fly. He felt so discouraged and so down on it. So perseverance is certainly part of the story. Now, you could say, okay, well, all these other people working on flight probably had that some grit and determination and perseverance. But but it certainly is a very, very strong um, attribute of the Wright brothers. So I would say perseverance. I would also say that they were the first to think about the problem of powered flight differently. So other people had had been flying gliders and so forth. And most people thinking about powered flight were thinking about a propeller being like a propeller on a ship, a rudder on a ship like a. Uh, um, uh, they were like a screw. They were called a screw, like a, a water screw, a propeller pushing a ship through the through the ocean or through a river. The Wright brothers think about that fundamentally in a different way. They feel that a propeller would basically be like a rotary wing so that it would actually have to help provide uh, lift as, as the propeller or propellers were rotating through the air. So that would be a second piece of it. And the third piece of it, I think, is that they were indeed craftsmen. They built bicycles of their own design from the ground up, and so they were very, very handy. I mean they they had they had book knowledge; they were very well read, but they also were very practical um, people. You know, having the the tools in their hands and and learning how to build things. Um, this is, you know, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, at the turn of the century time period, was the, was the um, bicycle craze. Anybody and everybody could, could buy a bicycle, own bicycles. It, it, it was so liberating for people. It, it really fills that gap. It's before the automobile. It's, it, it's so liberating. You know, you don't have to have the expense and all the aggravation of caring for a horse. You can plan your own route, your own schedule, unlike a streetcar or a train. Um, it was a very liberating experience. And so sales of bicycles exploded. Just in Dayton, Ohio alone, we had something like a dozen different bicycle shops. So it wasn't like, you know, the Wright Brothers had the only bicycle shop in Dayton, but they did have a very um, successful business of selling nationwide, you know, national brands of, national brands of bicycles uh, that they would sell through their store. But for a period of time they had three different uh brands of bicycles of their own design and own construction that they were selling and so i think that's a critical piece of the puzzle as well Um,
0: in my preparation for today one of the things that we talked about when we spoke was you know that infamous date december 17th 1903 that first successful flight and it lasted about 12 seconds And the flyer traveled for about 120 feet. That day, there were four flights between the two brothers and the longest one lasted just under a minute. I was amazed at the reaction they had. I know you mentioned earlier that the privacy that Kitty Hawk provided, but the brothers took photographs to prove their claim. And this also made me laugh. Is it true that the famous picture was taken by an amateur photographer and it was the first photograph he ever took?
1: That's absolutely correct. So um, a credit to the Wright brothers that they had the foresight to document everything they were doing along the way. For a time, they were so enamored with photography, which again was kind of an exploding uh, hobby and popular pastime in this era, that they actually sold photographic supplies through their bicycle uh, business, but the reason I did mention that you're absolutely right. Here at Caroline Historical Park, at the Wright Brothers National Museum, we have the 1902 Corona Five camera that took one of history's most reproduced photographs, the history-making photograph showing the first flight that 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 uh, that the Wright brothers took on December 17, 1903. The man that took the photograph was a man named John T. Daniels. He was a member of the Kill Devil Hills Life Saving Station. He had never taken a photograph before in his life. There was a shutter bulb on the side of the camera. Orville Wright set the tripod up and he set the camera up where he thought the aircraft might lift off from its starting track. And he said to John Daniels, he said, John, squeeze that bulb if anything interesting happens, those are his exact words, if anything interesting happens. And as we know, and fortunately, you know, he he took a great photograph, something very interesting happened because the aircraft took off under its own power into a 21 mile per hour headwind and took off into history, 12 second flight, covered 120 feet. John Daniels was so excited at seeing the aircraft lift off under its own power after he had only previously ever seen them you know, uh, running with their earlier gliders. He was so excited seeing the aircraft lift off that he couldn't remember afterward if he in fact had squeezed the bulb to take the photograph. Oh my and so, God. yeah, and so in that, you know, obviously it wasn't like what we understand today where you can take, you know, a hundred photos on your smartphone in, in, in a matter of seconds. Um, the Wright brothers waited, they had to wait until they returned to Dayton, Ohio And developed the glass plate negative a five inch by seven inch glass plate uh, negative to develop it and realize that they did in fact have their irrefutable evidence of being the first first to fly
0: can you imagine the excitement of that moment for the wright brothers the excitement of their invention working the excitement of that feeling of flying Through the air, the excitement of the man taking this photograph and seeing something so incredible, and then asking, "You know, did you get the photograph?" And I'm saying, "I don't know." I
1: mean, it's crazy. No, it's amazing. It's 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 amazing. And I've told the story to people over the years, but when you really stop and think about it, it is. On the one hand, you kind of think Orville has to be thinking, "Oh, come on, man! You you know you don't even know if you took the photograph." (laughs) On the other hand, I think he and everybody else was so excited that maybe it was understandable, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It's just to be there. One of those moments in time, you know, that again, it's when we think about certainly American history, that photograph has been reproduced almost more than anything else. I mean, certainly the flag raising on uh, Iwo Jima is another one that's been, you know, uh, reproduced many, many, many times, but, but that uh, yeah. It's just a remarkable, remarkable uh, story.
0: It's unbelievable. I read, you know, a write-up that came out about it in the New York Times after, you know, their successful flight. And it was just like this very small, almost like a footnote, like a very small little write-up. Is it true that there was more interest in their achievement in Europe than there was here in the States?
1: Yes. So the early, the earliest accounts of the Wright Brothers' flights were wildly inaccurate and they were sent out on the wire service from a, a, a newspaper out in virginia they were wildly inaccurate they everything from all oh, they flew two miles out over the ocean to some of the news accounts talked about them flying a an air, like basically what we would think of as like an airship or a dirigible so in terms of y- the european connection the in particular the french were very very interested in flight and human flight and they felt that they were the tip of the spear they had provided in 1783 the montgolfier brothers achievement to the world with with hot air balloon flight um so they did have i think more of an interest and i will say early on the Wright brothers really struggled in getting the u.s government interested in uh their invention the french um were also somewhat skeptical. They were interested in the Wright Brothers story, but they were also very skeptical of the Wright Brothers. And a lot of that comes about a little bit later in the story because we think about the 1903 flyer Kitty Hawk. It very much was their proof of concept. The problem the Wright Brothers had is that they lived in Dayton, Ohio. They were from Dayton, Ohio. They knew that it would not be sustainable for them to continue to have to travel all the way hundreds of miles down to the Atlantic Coast to continue their flight testing. So in 1904, after they had proven their concept, they had proof of concept with the Wright Flyer from 03, they talked to a neighbor of theirs uh, named Torrance Huffman, who owned an old uh, cow pasture and, and a prairie, and they asked to use his space to continue their experiments. And so eight miles to the east of their bicycle shop, They would travel by interurban car out to this cow pasture. They would have to round up the cows and horses and kind of put them inside the fencing. And they begin to perfect their flying machine in 1904 and 1905. And by the end of the 1905 flying season with their third airplane, the 1905 Wright Flyer III, they knew that they finally had a practical, marketable machine. And then they do what probably few of us would have the self-restraint to do today, And that is to put their amazing invention at the end of 1905 that it could fly for nearly 40 minutes through the air and it could fly circles and figure eights and bank and turn and fly under the full control of the pilot. They take that airplane and essentially leave it in hiding for about two and a half years. So all during 1906, 1907, and the first half of 1908, they are attempting to interest the Americans, the French, the British, uh, the Germans in their invention, both from a a corporate um, manufacturing standpoint and from a sort of a military application standpoint, like with the U.S. Army um, and so forth. And so it's during that period that the French then become very skeptical of the Wright brothers because going on at the same time, you have people starting to fly publicly in Europe, uh, most notably a Brazilian named Alberto Santos Dumont flies publicly in France in 1906 and seven before the Wright brothers were flying publicly in front of big crowds. And so even to this day, there are proud Brazilians who will claim that the Wright brothers really weren't the first to fly. It was really Alberto Santos Dumont. The problem is it all falls apart when you you look at the evidence because no one flew uh, you know, a powered flying machine, there's no evidence of them flying prior to December 17, 1903. Mm. So again, kind of a long-winded answer for you, but that's, that is, you know, that's all part of the part of the story. So when Wilbur Wright goes to France in 1908, in 1909, the French very quickly realized that the Wright brothers were not bluffers as they had been uh, derided in the French press, but in fact, Uh, As one Frenchman said, he said, we are like children compared to the Wrights because Wilbur Wright could fly over these uh, uh, racetracks in Le Mans and and Poe and all these other, you know, uh, French towns and and cities. And they very quickly realized that the Wright brothers had really conquered the problem of of, uh, practical flight.
0: You know. Eventually, the Wright brothers are issued seven different patents for their inventions and designs. Two were issued after the death of Wilbur Wright. Did their patents and the various lawsuits that came about as a result of their patents limit the aviation industry? You know, for example, when I was researching the Selden patent in my research on the automobile industry for another episode, which was a disaster for the automobile industry... You know, this guy, George Selden, he makes all this money and he didn't really do much. The Wright brothers were different. They designed it. They built it. They flew it. How did their patents affect aviation?
1: This is a very good question. And and, and uh, you're absolutely right. The Wright brothers were not viewing their invention as a gift, a quote unquote gift to the world, like a free gift, but very much they were trying to be businessmen and trying to. Um, realize recognition for their invention and profit from their invention. And so if anything, here's what ends up happening. Uh, The Wright brothers sue people repeatedly for patent infringement, and it works all through the court uh, system, both the federal courts and various state courts. The Wright brothers win these court battles repeatedly, but during that entire period it was almost like the secret was out the cat was out of the bag and and so some people will point blame to the Wright brothers and say that their various patent lawsuits stymied American aircraft development you know because they didn't have the same ability to fight and the same wherewithal to fight in Europe they did have um aircraft being man, you know manufactured in Europe under license and under syndicates. But it didn't. The point that I'm trying to make is that by World War One, the European aviation program was head and shoulders over the U.S. aviation program. And some people will point blame to the Wright brothers on that. My take on that would be that there may be some blame. But the other piece of it is that Wilbur Wright dies of typhoid fever when he's only 45 years old and he dies in 1912. And after that point, you know, uh, even though Orville will still get a couple of additional um, patents, one aviation based, it it was really like that partnership had died. The, The two that had been so successful because they would argue a problem and work every angle of it you know, that was now gone with, with Wilbur's death. And so I I think that's all part of the same story. I mean, if we think about it today, if if there's a new technology out, some, some great new invention with some app for a phone, you know, if Apple sues Samsung or Samsung sues Apple, there's a lot of money on the line. and, And that court process is important, but once the, once it's out there, it's hard to kind of put, put it all back and, and, and hide it. You know what I'm saying? I, no, I don't know if absolutely. that's making sense,
0: but... No, no, absolutely. You know, for the Wright brothers, with their designs and their inventions, are modern-day planes in any way similar to what the Wright brothers designed?
1: They are. Uh, in particular, what the Wright brothers did, and this would be a, another one of these secrets to their success when other people maybe weren't so successful, is that modern aircraft are for the most part, are still, they ha- they are independently controlled uh, along the three axes of flight, pitch, roll, and yaw, and so the pitch of the aircraft, nose up and nose down, the roll of the aircraft, you know, wingtip to wingtip, and then the yaw control, where, the, where you're basically sending the aircraft nose left and nose right. The Wright brothers are the first to have an airplane, to have all three of those axes of flight independently controlled from one another. And that was a major part of the success of their invention as well, that those three could be independently controlled. Prior to this time, most of their competitors, and in fact, even their early iterations that the riplers had and, and like with their gliders, if you were controlling the uh, roll control, wingtip to wingtip, what we might think of nowadays like with um, ailerons or flaps, the flaps in the wings of an airplane, that was linked to the yaw control. Um, and so separating the three of them out was was a major uh, advancement.
0: Alex, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. Is there anything in particular you would like our listeners to know about the Wright Brothers National Museum?
1: Um, yes. I, one thing that I would say is that Similar to how I started off today's discussion, the Wright brothers were two very different people, and we think about Wilbur Wright. He dies in 1912, when aircraft are still mostly biplanes made out of wood, wire, and fabric. Orville Wright lives all the way until the end of uh, all the way until uh, 1948, and among other things, he lives to see the day that Chuck Yeager breaks the sound barrier in in a, in a rocket plane. Uh, about 700 miles per hour. So in less than 44 years, you go from a flight on a sand dune to someone going faster than the speed of sound. And what I would want your listeners to know is that if they come to Dayton, Ohio, they can visit the Wright Brothers National Museum here at Carolina Historical Park. And we tell those stories. We try to tell the the entirety of the story. We have more original Wright Brothers artifacts on exhibit here than are on exhibit anywhere else in the world. Everything from you know, uh, a wood block that Wilbur Wright carved when he was a child their sister Catherine's school bell when she was a school teacher. I mean, all the way through the 1905 Wright Flyer III, the world's first practical airplane. And then we have inventions on exhibit that Orville Wright was working on before he died. So we truly try to tell the entirety of the Wright Brothers story here at this site. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we're located in the National Aviation Heritage Area. So there are multiple other aviation assets here. Most notably, we have the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton. So I would urge anyone in your listening audience to put it on their bucket list to come to Dayton, Ohio. We're not flyover country, we're not just a Rust Belt city. We're a city that has an amazing, amazing story to tell. And it's really the best place in the world to learn about early aviation.
0: Unbelievable. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I tell you, if I get to Dayton, Ohio, I'm coming.
1: Please do look me up. We'll we'll give you a behind the scenes tour of some of these places. So thank Excellent. you so I much. Hold for, you to it. Yeah, we really appreciate the opportunity. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Alex.
0: If you are looking to be inspired, go to Dayton, Ohio. Visit the Wright Brothers National Museum. Take a trip to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. You can see the flyer built and flown by the Wright brothers. And while you're there, you can also see the plane flown by Chuck Yeager who broke the sound barrier in 1947, an achievement that Orville Wright lived to see. In 1903, it was hard for people to believe that the Wright brothers had actually flown. Just 45 years later, a plane will be able to fly faster than the speed of sound. Just 22 years after that, man will not only be able to fly to the moon, but walk on it. So go and look at these incredible artifacts at the Smithsonian or at the Wright Brothers National Museum and be inspired to take your dream that you might think to be impossible and turn it into a reality. Thank you, Jeannie. Great information, great interview. Special thanks to Alex Heckman, VP of Museum Ops of Dayton History. Now, we have all heard that two wrongs don't make a right, but with two rights, the possibilities are endless. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website,
1: ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.